Sorry about the delay, everybody. Uh, some of you who follow me on Twitter know that a very good friend of mine died suddenly, and that really rocked me. Um, then right on the heels of that, we all came down with some kind of horrible respiratory illness. It uh, doesn't appear to be COVID, but it is definitely gumming up my voice. So please forgive my voice if it sounds a little bit craggy. Thank you so much for your patience, and let's get going. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 395, Rearranging the Deck Chairs on HMS England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Elon for being one of the best friends I've ever had, and I'm really going to miss you, man. It was autumn of 1066. And after weeks of deliberation, political wrangling, and arguing, the English nobility had finally selected their next king. Now, this might seem like they took a long time to do this, especially considering that there's a whole invasion happening at the time. And actually, it was a long time. But to be fair, the politics surrounding the situation were very confusing. We don't have the minutes from their debates, so we can't know precisely what arguments were being made. But looking at the candidates and the situation in England, it's pretty easy to imagine some of the issues that might have been causing the deadlock. As we mentioned in the past, none of the candidates were particularly strong. And also, this was the second succession crisis in less than a year. And weirdly, by doing what King Edward wouldn't do, by having sons, King Harold Godwinson had made this crisis even more complicated than that first one. Because a son of the previous king, especially when that son was English, tends to be a very strong candidate for succession. Unfortunately, picking the eldest son of Harold wasn't as politically easy as it might seem. First of all, Earls Edwin and Morcar held about half of the kingdom. And those two had a long-standing feud with the House of Godwin. So selecting another Godwinson might result in half the kingdom kicking up into rebellion. And secondly, there was also the matter of William and what he wanted. Now, Duke William's complaints and his reasons for invasion had really been all over the map. But almost all of them, in some way, centered on Harold Godwinson. And so now that Harold had been killed, there was a possibility that William might feel satisfied. However, if they followed traditional succession rules and elevated one of Harold's kids, it's also possible that he could take that as an insult and then continue the fighting. And there was a claimant that might have a chance of appeasing this invader. William had been running around telling anyone who would listen that he was close to the House of Wessex, the dynasty of King Edward. And as you know, Edgar the Atheling was the scion of the House of Wessex. So perhaps selecting Edgar would be enough to calm the bastard down. So while all this delay is absolutely maddening, if we look at things in the light most favorable to the nobility, 
It's possible that the dithering may have been due to a belief among some of the nobles that with the right selection, they could end this fight right here without any more battles. Though at the same time, it's not entirely sympathetic and altruistic, because as time went on and the raiding continued, and the Duke took Dover and then Canterbury, it would have become quite clear to the Witan that William wanted more than simply the removal of Harold, and that this was a conquest. Which meant that pretty quickly, all this dithering would have been about politics rather than an attempt to end the war without further bloodshed. And as for those politics, well, those get pretty selfish. Later accounts tell us that Earls Edwin and Morcar wanted the throne for themselves. And as they controlled about half the kingdom, getting them on board for any selection would have been critical. But eventually, at long last, the Witan accepted reality and began working in earnest to deal with the enormity of the threat that was in front of them. And while it's unclear whether the council knew that as they debated this issue, their enemy was actually sitting vulnerable at the broken tower, with an emphasis on sitting, by this point, they would have known that the bastard wasn't going away unless he was forced to. And to force him, they really did need a king. And also, an English army. And the citizens and sailors of London had already proclaimed their support for Edgar, likely because they were watching William's devastation of the South and knew that if a king wasn't selected soon, they would be next. But it was when Edwin and Morcar said that they would muster their military resources and take the fight to William, but only if Edgar was proclaimed king, that this matter was truly clinched. And with the deadlock broken the Witan declared that the next king of England would be the 14-year-old Hungarian-born Edgar the Atheling. But that didn't mean everyone was happy about it. In particular, we're told that many of the assembled churchmen opposed this selection. And that's not entirely surprising. Archbishop Stigand and Bishop Woolstan of Worcester were friends and allies of King Harold Godwinson. And on top of that, Harold had given quite a bit of money to church properties during his life. And when it comes down to it, the church tended to prefer generous benefactors. And in this case, that meant the House of Godwin, not the House of Wessex. But beyond the politics, there was also the spiritual aspects to decipher. You see, custom said that the sons of kings are the next in line which was also an extension of the belief that kings ruled through divine right. So that raised the question, would elevating Edgar, who was not the son of a king, he was pretty far down the line, over one of Harold's sons, well, would that be against God's will? And speaking of God's will, William was claiming that he was there by papal right. And his victory over Harold at Hastings could be interpreted as God weighing in and stating his support for William. But support on what? I mean, God could have simply been condemning Harold to death over that broken oath that William kept going on and on about. That's not the same as God saying, I want William to rule England. Also, don't forget that there are also rumors that King Harold had been excommunicated. So was God against the Godwinsons or just Harold? Because typically, excommunications are specific to the person, not the entire family line. 
but maybe it was different in this case. Complicating the analysis of God's intent was the fact that William and his army were ravaging the South, and the outright slaughter of peasants was often interpreted by holy men as an expression of God's righteous wrath, which would mean that William's actions may have been the earthly manifestation of God's anger. And if that was the case, then these holy men needed to know what God was angry about. Alternatively, William's advance appears to have slowed, maybe even stopped, and there was illness ravaging his army. So is now God mad at William? What exactly was God up to here? The religious elements were confusing as hell, and the ambiguity was clearly bothering the bishops. And so, even after Edgar was chosen, the political conflict and factionalism continued in the halls of power. And much of it, it seems, was driven by the clergy. And all of this could explain why there doesn't appear to have been a coronation. It could be evidence that the bishops were dragging their feet on the one aspect that they had control over. And perhaps they were trying to avoid further irritating Big J by backing the wrong horse. But, fancy oil or not, Edgar in the end was still selected king. Meanwhile, down in Canterbury, and in Dover, and all the way back in Hastings, there were a lot of heavily armed men and horses who believed that William was king. Well, to be fair, the men believed that William was king. Their horses, on the other hand, were wise enough to avoid politics. But here's the thing. The Normans weren't the only heavily armed men in England who had an interest in politics. We're also told that some of the assembled earls had arrived in London with a significant number of troops. And in particular, the brothers Earl Edwin of Mercia and Earl Morcar of Northumbria had arrived with a large army. And that actually tells us two things. First, it tells us that the English military capacity was far from depleted and that the third were still coming when called. And second, it tells us that their absence at Hastings might have been political rather than merely the result of war exhaustion following their defeat at Fulford Gate. So great job, guys. But that aside, the fact remains that there were apparently quite a few soldiers in London. And there was also a promise that once England had a king, particularly Edgar, they would fight in his name. And now England did have a king, and his name was Edgar. I mean, sure, he wasn't crowned yet, but that was just a formality. So it was time to get cracking and take the fight to William. And luckily, at this point, William and his Normans were in no shape to fight. So let's go. Guys? What gives? Let's go. Meanwhile, at the Broken Tower, things were exactly how you'd imagine. I suspect the tensions must have been pretty high among the Normans at this point. I mean, they left a number of wounded soldiers back at Hastings. They had to leave a ton of sick and increasingly dehydrated soldiers behind at Dover. And now, at the Broken Tower, even the Duke had come down with this friggin' illness. Thank God Canterbury didn't realize how precarious things were, 
Otherwise, they might have actually put up a fight instead of handing over supplies and, I'm guessing, a bunch of moss and sticks for, you know, personal hygiene. And you know what sounds great when you've got a dysentery-chapped bum? Moss on a stick. So yeah, things at the tower would have been dire. They were so dire, in fact, that the carman tells us that William and his army halted there for an entire month. Which begs the question, what the hell were the English nobility doing? A month is a long time. King Harold raised two thirds in that same number of weeks. So what was going on in London? Where were Edwin and Morcar and that large army they brought with them? Where was Waltheof? Where were the thanes and firds from all throughout the kingdom? Where were the citizens of London and all those sailors who had supported Edgar's ascension to the throne? Hell, I mean, it's the 11th century. This was back when even bishops would brain people on the battlefield with clubs. So where were the churchmen? Where was anyone who could swing a sword or a heavy stick? Well, it looks like they were in London. Still. And at this point, I'm guessing that some of you are eager for me to hurry up and move the story forward, especially after the last episode, which also went on and on about aristocratic dithering. Because it kind of feels like forever, doesn't it? It's actually been about 45 minutes. So I've done this deliberately because imagine what over a month of this must have felt like for the common English folk especially as news was filtering in about towns and villages being laid to waste, and families being murdered, and children being enslaved. And all the while, their nobility remained in London and focused on the pettiest of politics. You see, this part of the story is usually cut out, and presumably is cut out because it's interpreted as being irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant. At every moment, another choice could have been made. And opportunities were lost, and then lost again. This inaction wasn't a non-event, and it's not irrelevant. There were a shocking number of chances to address this crisis. William and his army were terribly sick, which is a fact that I'm guessing none of you will ever forget now. But they were also wounded, they were spread out, and they were repeatedly exposed. And it appears that the English people genuinely expected their leaders to take advantage of at least one of these opportunities and kick the Normans out of the kingdom. In fact, we have documents that indicate that the English thought the Norman invasion would blow over and that England would continue under the rule of King Edgar. For example, the abbot of Peterborough sought to be confirmed by Edgar the Atheling, and confirmation is a task typically carried out by kings. And Edgar actually took the time to grant the request for confirmation. That's staggering in retrospect, and it tells us quite a lot about what was going on in the halls of power at this point. First of all, it tells us that Edgar had a lot of support. Because in that same document, we're told that the abbot sought his approval because, quote, local people expected that he would be king, end quote. 
So that tells us that Englishmen, at least as far as the Midlands, were aware of the political situation in England, they knew that Edgar was the scion of the House of Wessex, and they expected him to be king. Far from being ignorant about what their leaders were doing and what their responsibilities were, the local peoples of England knew where their leaders were and what they were tasked with doing, and they clearly expected them to win. The English apparently believed it so much that they were still engaging with the court in London as a legitimate ruling body, and were no doubt certain that any minute now, those leaders would march across London Bridge at the head of a massive army to deal with William. And I suspect that they were beginning to wonder why that was taking so long. And second, this confirmation of the Abbot of Peterborough also tells us that the people in power expected Edgar to be king. Even Edgar himself expected to be king because they were acting as if this was a done deal, all in spite of the existential crisis that was looming over them. And to be clear, it doesn't look like the nobles believed they were sitting on their hands. Instead, the subtext of the record suggests that the nobles truly thought that the political horse trading and posturing was important. Perhaps even more important than the huge Norman army in the south that, and I can't emphasize this enough, had been an open and existential threat for a very long time. By the time that William got to Canterbury, he and his army had been in England for nearly a month and he'd been destroying towns and villages with impunity. And in addition to the devastation that they'd wrought on the south, they'd also defeated an English army and killed the king of England as well as his brothers and countless nobles at Hastings. This was a known threat. And now he and a portion of his army were residing in Canterbury while other divisions were holding Dover and Hastings. And according to the Carmen, they were there at the Broken Tower for a month. So we're looking at nearly two months in England, pillaging, raising, and killing at will. And past the Battle of Hastings, William had been allowed to do this almost entirely unopposed. All while the English leadership remained in London, apparently handling important political matters such as titles. It's maddening. But speaking about being mad, apparently William got word that Edgar thought he was king and was doing things like confirming members of the church. And he was livid. And my guess is that the thing that upset the Duke the most was that if people as far as Peterborough thought that Edgar was king, then this kid had an uncomfortable amount of support in England. And he could gain more. And while William might have had the trots, that didn't mean that his entire army did. So anyone who had recovered enough to ride mounted up and started making the case for William's claim to the throne. And they did so in a distinctly Norman way. John of Worcester tells us that while the English nobility remained in London with their armies, the Normans were, quote, laying waste Sussex, Kent, Hampshire, Surrey, Middlesex, Herefordshire, and cease not from burning vills and slaughtering the inhabitants. End quote. Herefordshire? 
Now, assuming that John wasn't making a mistake here, that means that throughout this invasion, William's army were out there burning, looting, and murdering all the way from the tip of Kent to the f***ing Welsh border. And the English nobility, despite promising to act as soon as the matter of the crown had been handled, were still in London doing absolutely nothing other than apparently confirming abbots. Even worse, the scribes of the Chronicles speak of how this ravaging was carried out by William's soldiers who survived Hastings and also by those who, quote, came since to him from overseas, end quote. Which means that William was now getting reinforcements from across the channel. And that suggests that as the English nobility abandoned the countryside, the English fleet had also packed up and had abandoned the English coast. Outstanding. But not all of the Normans were out there ravaging the countryside. William remained at the Broken Tower, though just because he was staying behind didn't mean he was sitting on his hands. That would have been deeply unhygienic. Instead, according to the Carmen, he was attempting to negotiate the surrender of the southern towns and cities. And in particular, he had his sights set on a politically, economically, and culturally important city. No, not London. Not yet. Instead, he was focused on the ancient capital of the Kingdom of Wessex. The foundation of the House of Wessex's authority. The resting place of the ancient kings. The home of Alfred the Great and the seat of power for King Canute. Winchester. Now, as London had increased in power and wealth, Winchester had lost its status as a capital, but it still held enormous cultural importance in the South, and so did the woman who held it, the Dowager Queen Edith. And Edith was very important for William. William's entire claim on England was based on the story that King Edward had made a secret promise to bequeath the kingdom to him. And so if King Edward's widow, Queen Edith, stood in rebellion against him, well, that would have created all manner of problems for William and his claim to the throne. Making friends with Edith and getting her to side with the Normans was a crucial bit of political diplomacy for William if he intended to take the kingdom as a whole. And here is where William was once again extraordinarily lucky. Because as you might recall, when King Harold rose to the throne, he sidelined his sister Edith. And when he did that, a rift had formed between them. And apparently, William's informants were well aware of that rift. So the Norman Duke sent a detachment of knights to Winchester, no doubt hoping to exploit that bit of family dysfunction. But getting there was a long ride. Winchester is over 100 miles from Canterbury. And remember, they didn't have the advantage of driving a car on the M25 back then. So getting to Winchester would have taken a while. Perhaps as much as five days, depending on how easy they decided to take it on their horses. Because once again, this invasion actually took a long time. But eventually, the knights reached Winchester. And they conveyed their message to the Dowager Queen Edith. They told her she was to pay Duke William tribute. 
and historian Bates adds that there's an implied gift exchange with this tribute taking. And if true, that would suggest that William was making a serious effort at diplomacy and was genuinely trying to establish a relationship with Edith by exploiting ancient gifting culture to create reciprocal bonds. And creating those kinds of bonds was probably a good idea because the Knights also had a second demand for Edith. She was to surrender the city. And we aren't told what William said would happen if she refused this second demand, but I'm pretty sure we can guess. Now Poitiers, when talking about Edith, goes to great lengths to tell us that Edith was a steadfast supporter of William. But even a bare reading of the Vita Eduardi Regis, the document that Edith supposedly produced, shows that that was a lie. Rather than an enthusiastic supporter of William, instead, the Vita gives us a tone of regret and resignation. And the implication is that she was just doing her best to navigate this situation. In fact, the Vita barely mentions William's victory in England at all. Instead, the account focuses on how fraternal conflict brought down their house and how Edith bitterly resented what had become of their once powerful family. So I don't believe that Edith would have welcomed the arrival of the Knights as fellow compatriots who supported William. Instead, I suspect that she saw their arrival as yet another tragic result of the fight between Tostig and Harold. One that she loathed, but given the limitations her society placed upon female power, one she could do little about. Because almost all of her brothers were dead. Her last living brother was imprisoned by Duke William. Her surviving nephews were, it seems, teens at best. The South was in tatters. The sons of Elfgar, who were rivals of the House of Godwin, held the best standing military force left in the kingdom, but they'd already refused to fight for the House of Godwin once before, and so far hadn't lifted a finger to save the South. So Edith had few, if any, cards to play here. Making matters worse, this duke appeared to have no scruples. He and his army destroyed villages, they killed surrendering soldiers, they slaughtered the wounded. And this ruthless duke was now promising to treat them leniently if they surrendered now and paid him tribute. And I'm pretty sure that she probably thought this was as good of a deal as she was going to get. There was really only one path forward. Queen Edith surrendered Winchester and she paid the duke his tribute. And for William, it really didn't matter whether or not Edith gave this to him under duress. What mattered was that in one stroke, he had acquired a degree of legitimacy that he could have only dreamed of. King Edward's widow and King Harold's sister had just accepted him as overlord. I'm not sure how long Edith remained in the city following the submission in 1066. She appears to have quietly retreated to her home and kept her head down. But as for which home, well, she had residences in Winchester, she had estates in Wiltshire, and she also had the old nunnery in Wilton. But wherever she was, the ancient capital of Wessex and the resting place of the kings of old was now under the control of Normandy.
And with her submission, now the Normans could argue that the Queen of England, with links to both the House of Wessex and the House of Godwin, supported his claim. It was a major diplomatic coup. It was also a strategic one, because Winchester didn't stand alone. It also controlled Portsmouth Harbor, which was a trading hub and a logistical point of entry into England. And shortly thereafter, ships arrived on the southern coast, and they entered Portsmouth Harbor and landed at Fareham, and fresh reinforcements of knights from Normandy promptly disembarked and marched into the city. Meanwhile, in the Broken Tower, things were finally starting to firm up and take shape. Hastings was theirs. Dover was theirs. Canterbury was theirs. And now, Winchester was theirs. And more importantly, after what the Carmen says was an entire month stuck in that tower, finally, they were also ready to ride. The cramps were lessening. There wasn't so much blood. The chills were gone. And beyond feeling healthier, they also had another reason to want to ride as soon as possible. The records report that William was absolutely seething over Edgar's elevation and the fact that the English rejoiced at this selection. So he wanted some payback. And the Carmen tells us that as soon as he was ready to ride, quote, William destroyed everything by force that had not already been burnt, end quote. And remember, they'd been at the Broken Tower for quite some time, and his men had been busy. The Doomsday Book shows that much of the land around Canterbury had been thoroughly ravaged. Honestly, much of the land from Hastings to Canterbury was in tatters, so there probably wasn't a lot left for William to ruin. But according to the Carmen, he did his level best to make the area even worse before setting off for London. And besides, the Norman army wasn't all that interested in logistics and resupplies. They just tended to take whatever they needed from whoever was nearby. And so William's bloody tantrum was also a bit of a twofer. And now that they were marching west, they had a lot of new targets. A lot more destruction and slaughter. And as they passed Maidstone, there were even more targets. The suffering and ruin that the southern coast had been enduring for nearly two months was now the reality for the people who lived along the approach to London. Now, the particular route that the invasion army took isn't explicitly described in the Carmen or by Poitiers. But William, it seems, had a zest for desolation, and he would wield it with vigor. And so when we look at the Doomsday Book, and we look at the wealth of towns and villages before the invasion, and then compare them with the wealth they had immediately after the invasion, what is revealed is a trail of devastation that winds along not Watling Street, which was the old Roman road leading from Canterbury to London and beyond, but instead we see the marks of destruction along the smaller, less popular road, the Pilgrim's Way. This, it seems, was William's path. It wasn't as direct a route, nor was it as well suited to a marching army as Watling Street would have been. But that seems to be where he marched. And it suggests that even now, 
William was concerned about encountering opposition, and so he preferred to move instead on less traveled routes. And as he and his army moved along the Pilgrim's Way, his knights were out in the field murdering people, burning homes, slaughtering livestock, and destroying communities. Now, I did read one historian who suggested that William was showing restraint in this march because the devastation we see in this march isn't as bad as what we will later see in the harrying of the North. And as you might guess, I find that claim ridiculous. It would be like suggesting that a serial killer was rather restrained in his first few murders because he hadn't yet progressed to the more elaborate scenes yet. Just because William and his Normans got really good at mass murder and would do it later on an even bigger scale doesn't mean that this time was actually restrained. The numbers that we see in the Doomsday Book make it quite clear that the actions of this army were not restrained and were already genocidal. And even the Norman sources talk about how William was deliberately destroying everything that hadn't already been burned to the ground. This wasn't an accident of a marching army. This was an intentional policy of destruction. Meanwhile, in London, the English aristocrats were finally starting to get to work. The Carmen tells us that Edgar Atheling had gathered his forces and set up some defenses just outside of the walls of London. And while that was probably cold comfort to all the communities who had already been subject to William's wrath for the last nearly two months, it was at least a sign that the English nobility were taking some action. And we're not told specifically what the strategy of this placement was, but my best guess is that the elite were working to protect the kingdom's capital, and naturally, themselves. And so they set their forces up specifically for that purpose. It almost seems like they are treating William and his army like raiders, because this defensive posture looks like an attempt to weather a storm, rather than an effort to rebuff an invading army that was bent on conquest. And so I wonder if they were truly taking this threat seriously. And part of me wonders if this was also the result of the trauma of Hastings. Because this new English leadership, almost all of whom would have been young and largely untested, appear to have been hesitant to attack William in the field. So I wonder if they are fearing that they might meet the same end as King Harold Godwinson. But whatever their plan was, Poitiers tells us that the English used the last month or so to cram as many soldiers and fighters into the city as possible. In fact, we're told that London contains such an enormous force that they couldn't even house all of the fighters who had come. The city was brimming over with warriors, which gives the impression that there must have been some sort of mustering of a new fyrd. So while the English hadn't yet marched on William, it does seem like the common folk were willing to fight for their new king, Edgar the Atheling. They were probably just waiting for their leadership to give the order to march. And... It wasn't long before a detachment of 500 knights arrived on the southern outskirts of London. Now, this was only a small portion of the Norman army. Just an advanced force, likely sent to scout and prepare for the arrival of the remainder of the army. You know, whatever portion of the Norman army that wasn't back at Canterbury, Dover, or Hastings because they were too sick or too wounded to travel. But that army judging by the records of devastation and destruction, 
appears to have been encamped about 20 miles south of London, at Nutfield in Red Hill. But this advance force of 500 knights was just a couple miles from the city of London, at Camberwell. And while they were in that district, they weren't just looking around and setting up their tents. They were doing the kind of things that knights on campaign do. So the region was quickly and methodically ruined. And according to Poitiers, this was the final straw. The Londoners had seen enough, and they marched across London Bridge, intent on finally bringing the fight directly to these invading Normans and their silly little ponies. And the language that Poitiers uses, how, quote, some of them gave a sortie, end quote, gives the impression that this may have been a spontaneous response by the Londoners, rather than a major military engagement instigated by the English leadership. Unfortunately, none of our sources give us details about this fight. Instead, we just have Poitiers, who puts a little spin on it and says rather blandly that the knights, quote, bravely drove them back within the walls, end quote. And then he moves on with his tale. The Carmen doesn't even mention it. But my suspicion is that this fight was a bit more difficult than the Normans would like to admit. Because after the Londoners were pushed back across the bridge, Poitiers tells us that the Norman knights angrily burned all the buildings on the southern side of the Thames, specifically to harm the pride of the Londoners. Southwark was burned to the ground in retribution. And that suggests that whatever opposition the Londoners mustered must have enraged the knights. And curiously, despite the apparent victory, William and the bulk of his forces remained about 20 miles to the south and made no attempts to advance forward and cross London Bridge. Even Poitiers admits that this one fight that the knights got into was defensive. All the evidence suggests that William was unwilling to fight London directly believing that the city was too well defended to be taken by assault. And that fight at London Bridge very well may have confirmed his beliefs. So rather than focusing on the walls of London, William and the Normans decided to continue to ravage and destroy all the towns that encircled the city. And interestingly, the Carmen claims that William decided to put London under siege. This is something that no other account mentions, and it's possible that Guy of Amiens just got this one wrong. But I also wonder if Guy was just being a bit flowery with his language, and maybe trying to put a little polish on what William's tactic actually was, and make it sound a little bit more heroic. Because what William was doing was kind of a siege. He was certainly bent on cutting London off from any allies, and he definitely wanted to deprive the people within that city from any resupplies, reinforcements, or resources. It just looks like in this case, the way he was going about it wasn't with ramparts and battering rams, but instead through his primary method of war, the indiscriminate murder of the local population. And so, rather than advancing north and attempting to cross London Bridge with his army, William instead continued west on the southern side of the Thames. And as he traveled he ravaged any and all communities he could reach until, at Wallingford, he crossed the Thames 
and began to move north and east. Which meant he was now nearly 50 miles from London and only 13 miles from Oxford. So he really was cutting a wide swath around the city. And his intent with this tactic couldn't be more clear. He wasn't seeking open battle. Instead, if London wouldn't surrender, then he would turn the center of the kingdom into a wasteland. Historian Bates notes that, quote, the exceptionally low doomsday book values along the south bank of the Thames must also indicate that deliberate destruction was employed there to show William's disapproval and to undermine the morale of his opponents, end quote. Now, Bates doesn't use the word, but I will. What William was doing was terrorism. He was destroying entire communities. We're not talking just about Unferth here. We're talking about Hilda, their children, their friends, their parents, their extended family, their livestock, their homes, everything. What the records imply here is destruction on a practically industrial scale. That's terrifying. Furthermore, based on what's written in the Chronicle and elsewhere, it seems that detachments of his army, as well as fresh reinforcements from across the channel, were carrying out this same campaign of annihilation all the way from Kent to the border of Wales. And for the leadership, who might not have had the same concern for the peasants as King Harold Godwinson apparently did, well, these attacks were still hitting the aristocrats where it would hurt them the most, their pocketbooks. And militarily, this march was having the effect of cutting them off from any further support that they might get from their compatriots to the north and to the west. What William was doing was ruthless, it was vicious, it was horrifying, but it was also very tactical. But London wasn't defenseless. It was full of soldiers, many of whom were under the direct control of Earls Edwin and Morcar. And those two had promised they would bring battle to William if Edgar was selected as king. It was time to finally do something. And so, quote, while many were preparing to go forth to battle, the earls withdrew their support, end quote. And remember, those two earls controlled about half the kingdom. And the south was already devastated. So we're probably looking at over half of the available English military force being withdrawn by these two earls. Reportedly, right as the military was getting ready to go to war. And John of Worcester tells us that the brothers had abandoned their king. And Malmesbury adds that they were holding back because they wanted to be king themselves. Like Queen Edith's Vita, the sources give the impression that the main thing that made William successful wasn't his own prowess or skill, but instead it was the short-sighted self-serving opportunism and cowardice that took place amongst the English aristocracy. And abandoned by their leaders, the Carmen tells us that towns and villages began to send messengers to William's army, seeking terms. Well, the Carmen says it much more poetically. Quote, Just as hungry flies attack in swarms, wounds brimming with blood, so from all sides the English rush to dance attendance on the king. Nor do they come with hands empty of gifts. All bring presents, 
bow their necks to the yoke, and kiss his feet on bended knees. End quote. So they weren't just seeking terms. They were bringing whatever tributes they could gather and prostrating themselves in whatever ways they thought might save them from the fate that so many other communities had suffered at the hands of these knights. Because of course they were. Their leadership had gathered all the warriors of their region, stuffed them into a central location, and then refused to go out into the field and do the one thing that they were duty-bound to do. These were people whose only real purpose in society was to peacekeep, and they drained the resources and treasure of their communities on the promise that they would do that one job. But now, as mass murder was being carried out, they were instead using those resources to hide and defend themselves and were leaving everyone else to the tender mercy of the murderers. And seeing that happen appears to have been a breaking point for many communities. It also seems to have been a breaking point for one member of the English leadership. Because while William was at Wallingford, a familiar figure approached his encampment. Archbishop Stigand, the longtime friend and supporter of the House of Godwin. And he'd seen enough. He was ready to submit and accept William as his overlord. And let's be honest, the leadership back in London weren't exactly eager to fight William, so it wasn't long before Archbishop Eldred of York, Earls Edwin and Morcar, Bishop Wolfstan of Worcester, Bishop Walter of Hereford, and, of course, young Edgar Atheling also came to submit to Duke William. Without fighting a single battle, the new elite of England, who had gathered such a massive army on the promise that they would deal with this threat, instead chose to surrender. And version D of the Chronicle tells us that William accepted the surrender, after they provided oaths and hostages, of course, and he promised them that he would be a good lord to them all. But this was William, and this was the Norman army. So once those formalities were over, and the English were left without any leadership, the Chronicle tells us that William and his army continued destroying the countryside and its peoples. Because this is who he was. And soon, he would wear the crown. You should see me in a crown. I'm gonna run this nothing to her.